This episode of 312 is brought to you by Thompson Hine Podcasts and their series, Environmental LAWS. Every industry and workplace felt the strain caused by the pandemic. For some, it was the strain of working from home or layoffs or keeping workers busy and productive. For others, it was the stress on your supply chain, manufacturing changeover to essential products like PPE, or balancing the health and safety of your essential workers. Regardless of the strains you and your company felt, both personally and professionally, an area we have observed as further suffering is environmental health and safety compliance. As manufacturing and the economy continue to recover, it is important that we address compliance head-on, identify where compliance might have slipped, and ensure we have a path forward to build in compliance and resiliency. In this podcast, we're going to approach three key subjects. First, the enforcement discretion policies that both OSHA and EPA had early in the pandemic and what that means now as we're emerging from the pandemic. Areas of compliance that we've identified as suffering because of the pandemic. And then finally, when should you consider disclosing these compliance gaps versus just finding them and fixing them? I'm Jackie Baxley, the Environmental Health and Safety Practice Leader at HRP. And I'm pleased to be joined by my friend and colleague, Nathan Hunt from Thompson Hine. Nathan, would you like to take a moment to introduce yourself and your company? Sure. Thanks, Jackie. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. As Jackie said, I'm Nathan Hunt. I'm an EHS attorney at Thompson Hine. Thompson Hine's one of the top 200 law firms in the country. We have Ohio offices in Cleveland, Columbus, Dayton, and Cincinnati. We also have offices in uh, Chicago, New York city and Atlanta and Washington, D.C. And my practice primarily is environmental on all levels, uh, compliance, litigation, uh, transactional. And I also do OSHA compliance and enforcement law. And Nathan and I have had the opportunity to work together you know, over several years, whether it's working with compliance evaluations, audits, and disclosures. And so I thought just from my years of working with Nathan that he could bring some great insight today for this podcast. And also to return the favor because we got to do a podcast together on Thompson Hines podcast. So looking forward to doing this one with you today. Absolutely. Great. Yeah, so let's let's dive right in. So so first the enforcement discretion. So EPA and OSHA both recognize that the pandemic was just an unprecedented situation. And and as a result, uh, that that compliance was going to be a challenge. So this was not, you know, new information for, for anybody. We knew that because of social distancing, because of travel restrictions, because of the need for individuals to work from home, whether it's for personal health reasons or family reasons, and just all the other myriad of, of pandemic you know, concerns, compliance was going to be an issue. Essential vendors were not going to be able to get to your locations. Essential employees that might uh, have always been the ones that did the training or did the inspections might not be able to get to the workplace. And so because of this, OSHA and EPA, both early in the pandemic, 
started releasing enforcement discretion guidance so that employers could could use that guidance to help triage the situations that that they were dealing with. Um, additionally, protecting the workplace from COVID largely fell on EHS personnel. Um, EHS personnel are pretty much the trickle down. If nobody else is going to take care of it of a plan, it's normally EHS or facilities that's going to, to handle it. So as such, the EHS personnel, you not only were dealing with the burdens of trying to uh, ensure compliance during a pandemic, but also the burdens of ensuring the health and safety of essential workers during the pandemic. So all of this led to the situation we recognize, which is compliance suffered during the pandemic. So, so there were, were two key uh, enforcement uh, memos that were issued, one by EPA, and, and OSHA actually released several uh, memos, but, but one that, that I want to talk about is, is the good faith efforts. So Nathan, do you want to maybe lead us off on the EPA enforcement discretion memo, and then, then I'll share some details on the health and safety one? Absolutely. So the EPA policy was interesting. As you said, you know, we're in this unprecedented situation where in almost every state, people are being required to stay home. You know, they are locked down and they are working from home and only essential personnel are showing up at particular uh, manufacturing sites and other environmental uh, sites subject to environmental regulation. And EPA's response to this was in March of 2020, right when the pandemic really hit, was to issue this policy document that they would provide enforcement. They would, they would exercise enforcement discretion, assuming you'd met certain conditions. And interesting thing I found about this was immediately right out of the gate how, uh, and, and not to make it a political thing, but you know, blue states immediately reacted and were like, this is ridiculous. We're not going to roll back our regulatory schemes like US EPA is doing. And you had red states saying, we're going to do what EPA's, US EPA is saying, we're going to do the same thing, blah, blah, blah. And it was very unprecedented because it, you know this stuff was hitting the news and it was getting picked up in the news and it became this story that US EPA was essentially allowing people to not comply with law. And they're basically saying, if you have a permit and it has limits or it has conditions, don't worry about it. You know, we, During the pandemic, you don't have to worry about it. And so, of course, there was outrage in many quarters. And you may recall, EPA actually issued a press release where they basically said, we have to issue this press release because there is so much misinformation about what our policy we issued says. And our policy says nothing about you cannot, you do not need to comply with your requirements. It says, if you fail to comply, we may exercise discretion under very particular circumstances to allow you to, you know, to not seek enforcement against you or seek penalties, et cetera. So in, in, in other words, it was almost like the audit policy in many respects, which we'll talk about a little bit later, where you know, it wasn't a free pass. You still potentially would be subject to enforcement, maybe no penalties, uh, but it was very discretionary. And it was designed, of course, for the very reason of EPA didn't really know what to expect. No one knew what to expect. The EHS people managing their particular sites didn't know what to expect. So it was it was fascinating uh, observing it from 30,000 feet, you know, seeing what was happening. But a lot of it, as we talked about, we don't have to get into details because, frankly, it's no longer in existence. It was very short lived. It only lasted from March through the summer. And then when 
at least initially, the pandemic seemed to be winding down in the late summer and the early fall, I think EPA said, okay, you know, if things are returning to normal, we don't need this anymore. We've got a handle on it. But a lot of it was record keeping based. Basically, if you were going to be in noncompliance, you better generate, you know, internal memos or other records to show what you tried to do to stay in compliance, how you remedied the situation as best you could so that you had a defensible position when this came around. And what two things I'll mention that I were also very interesting is I don't recall a single one of my clients using the policy. You know, no one ever called me and said, you know, hey, Nathan, we're not going to be in compliance. What should we do? But they did do this. They said, you know, Nathan, in our consent decree or in our permit, there's a force majeure clause, an act of God. Basically, the pandemic is an act of God. We can't we may not be able to comply. What should we do? And so what we did was we created this draft letter that we sent to agencies. And it was just sort of a laundry list of things where our client would say, look, we may not be able to do certain things. We're giving you notice of a force majeure, which was required under the permits, which was required under the consent orders. And a lot of times the agencies would respond and basically say, we appreciate that, you know, do your best. It's sort of a, a, a different way, if you will, of getting at this enforcement discretion. And one other thing I guess I would mention, too, is what I saw several times is enforcement action that was taken during this period. In other words, a client of mine would get a letter from the agency saying, we're issuing this NOV to you uh, for something maybe that happened before the pandemic really hit. But in every letter, they would say, let us know if because of COVID, you need more time or COVID contributed to why these violations happened, et cetera. And definitely people were taking advantage of that opportunity. I mean, in every case, we were taking as much time as we could get in in multiple, uh, multiple enforcement actions. COVID was a factor because we had folks who weren't at the facilities and we had to explain we weren't able to keep a certain record, et cetera. So it was interesting. It was, again, not directly the enforcement discretion policy that EPA issued, but it was sort of an offshoot of it, if you will. Yeah. And, and, you know, something key that you mentioned that, that I, that I picked up on is you've got to have that, that documentation of, of what you did to attempt to comply. And, and I know as, as our conversation progresses, we're going to be talking about auditing and, and, that's going to be key because so many uh, regulatory programs out there require that you maintain documentation for maybe three years. So if there were, you know, nine weeks of weekly inspections that are not in your records, then if I'm doing an audit, I would expect to see in your file where those nine weeks of weekly inspections should be that documentation that during this time, the audits were missed because of the pandemic and we are enacting either this EPA, you know, documented information guidance under the discretion policy, or if there was a state equivalent um, to, to serve as that, that record moving forward. I, I'd expect to see some documentation. So three years from now, when I'm asking for that record, don't tell me, oh, yeah, that was discretion period. You know, show me, <laughs> show me that that that's not a, an afterthought that was actually conscious during the time. And one thing yeah. I would mention real quick is the just because the discretion policy is no longer in existence. I mean, we're still in COVID. And if you are subject to an enforcement action, or an information request. I mean, you should factor whether COVID 
even if you're not asked by the agency whether COVID was a factor in the issue at hand, whether it is noncompliance or something else, was COVID a factor and factor it in and include that in your response? Because I think we're getting in this mindset now where you know people are getting vaccinated and we, you know, we're going to start living with COVID more than we were before. And that's all true, but it's still impacting folks, uh, manufacturing facilities, our clients. They need to continue to think about it in that respect. Especially since the EPA uh, memo sunsetted or expired on August the 31st, which was long before our worst peak. Our worst peak was, you know, early 2021, late 2020. So, so yeah, even if the policy had expired, you know, still, still show your good faith efforts. And in that term, good faith efforts, I think is a good segue to the, the next in, enforcement discretion policy. And that was from OSHA. Now, OSHA had numerous memos throughout the pandemic uh, whether it was guidance or discretion related to a specific program, such as respiratory protection or other guidance along the lines of how to ensure worker health and safety during COVID, you know, or how to uh, record or, or monitor work-related illnesses associated with COVID. So numerous memos were, were issued by, by OSHA over the last, you know, 12 to, to 18 months. Um, but the one that I want to highlight is the one that was published on April the 16th of 2020. So, hey, which it happens to be April the 16th today that we're recording this. So so this memo is, is a year old to today. And, and that one remains in effect today. And so unlike the environmental one that has technically expired, this OSHA one still remains in effect. And I call this the good faith efforts uh, memo. But it, it essentially, again, OSHA recognized because of the myriad of issues caused by, by COVID, compliance was going to be an issue. We had worker shortages. We had travel restrictions. We had social distancing restrictions. We had facilities that flat out had to close or other restrictions such as sheltering in place or, or what have you. So with that in mind, um, OSHA said they will have this, um, OSHA will assess an employer's good faith efforts to comply with the standards that require some type of annual or recurring conditions, such as, you know, uh, uh, an audit under the process safety management system, you know, or a, a recurring review of your lockout tagout program where you have to do those annual audits or annual training requirements such as, you know, the annual eight-hour Haswapper refresher training or, or some other annual training under one of the, the numerous programs, as well as the routine assessment requirements. Um, again, getting back to the process safety management, not only do you have, you know, to do audits, um, on a recurring schedule, but you have to, you know, reassess your process on a recurring system as well. So there's lots of calendar due dates when it comes to occupational safe and health, health regulations. So what OSHA said is where compliance is not possible, ensure employees are not exposed to hazards from task processes or equipment for which uh, they were not prepared or trained to deal with those hazards. 
explore other options thoroughly, whether that could be, all right, could we do this training through Teams or could we do this training through some online program? So you had to explore all your other options as thoroughly as possible. Consider any interim alternative controls, um, maybe temporary administrative controls, maybe temporary engineering controls, and then make sure that you schedule whatever that task was as soon as possible. So as soon as you were able to return to some degree of normalcy, you know, when when maybe the the conditions in your state or your location started to get better, you started to have more, um, you know, more travel, you know, more interactions, make sure that you got it scheduled just as, as soon as possible, which I think is important to note. It wasn't saying skip it all together. It was saying you still need to do it, and it's okay if it's late, as long as you still do it. So, um, you know, taking a, a look at this, you know, and I think to, to relate it to what you were just sharing with us, Nathan, on, on EPA's policy is where the employer cannot demonstrate their efforts to comply, a citation may still be issued. And, and so we really need to be able to demonstrate the good faith efforts. So again, that documentation to the file, this was the issue. This is why it was caused by COVID. And then this is what we did to ensure the health and safety of, of our employees during the, that time. You know, for example, maybe you couldn't do training, but maybe you could send an email out to everybody. Hey, read these three things just as a reminder or a refresher of what we need to do in the meantime. Or, hey, you know, we're going to, you know, we can't do this, you know, uh, process safety management audit at this point in time, but process safety management still applies. So ensure you're still following the following things. So so there were other, um, you just need to demonstrate what did you do to ensure the health and safety of your employees during this time. And then um, make a note of when you came back into compliance. So maybe you should have done your process hazard assessment for a covered process under process safety management by June the 1st of 2020, but it wasn't possible because of COVID. So when did you do it? When do you have it scheduled? And, and make sure that you do that soon as possible. So that one, you know, interesting to note, is still in effect. And, you know, we are still in the pandemic. I've gotten one of my two vaccines. I haven't gotten my second shot yet. So so we, we are still living with COVID. So that is still... Um, uh, an, a tool, if you will, in the toolbox of EHS professionals as they're continuing to triage and, and balance compliance. You know, to one thing I would add to that is well, actually two things. Uh, one would be I feel terrible that I didn't bring a cake to celebrate the one year anniversary <laughs> of the policy, and it's I feel like I missed like my wife's anniversary or something. Here. So this is <laughs> this is awful. Uh, but but all joking aside. Uh, you said it's still in effect. It is still in effect. The interesting thing we need to keep in mind is when the Biden administration came in, one of the first things they did was sign an executive order regarding what OSHA needs to do about COVID. And one of the things in that executive order was it needs to assess whether an emergency temporary COVID standard should be adopted by OSHA. Right now, obviously, we're just using existing OSHA standards to deal with COVID, you know, the respiratory standard, infectious disease standard, PPE standard, et cetera. So not shockingly, OSHA looked at that and decided, yes, we do need an emergency standard. 
they have not issued that standard yet, but it's expected any day. And we don't need to get into the necessarily the details of it, but it'll be interesting to see how the standard lives with this good faith policy, because at this point, there is now going to be a standard you need to meet. And will the good faith policy still be applied the same way? Or will the good faith policy be phased out as the standard is implemented, basically saying you've had enough time to get the proper PPE or to adopt those training mechanisms, alternative training mechanisms you referenced, like doing Zoom calls, et cetera. So just something to be on the alert for out there because we are probably days away from that standard hitting, which is going to be temporary, well, excuse me, emergency temporary standard, but the word on the street is it will be made permanent because COVID likely is to be permanent, just like the flu, just like the common cold. COVID's not going away. So this COVID standard may not be going away either. Right. Yeah. And we've only had guidance to this point relative to to OSHA and and COVID in, in the workplace. So um, and, and really the the general duty clause is the only thing that OSHA's kind of had in its toolbox. And, and with this temporary standard, as you were saying, emergency temporary standard, um, OSHA is going to have more tools in their toolbox you know, to ensure health and safety as well. So good points. Good points. So COVID aside, um, you know, what were some of the common compliance lapses that that we've seen out there? And, you know, not not surprisingly, maybe is is that the common compliance gaps that we've seen during this last, you know, 12, 13 months are the same ones that we saw pre-COVID. Um, they're, they're the same uh, regulatory programs that I think people always struggle with, um, either because of their misunderstanding of the standards or just the challenging nature of, of applying these standards in the workplace. So, so there's, there's kind of six key areas, if you will, um, where we've seen compliance gaps. Training, whether that's environmental training or health and safety training requirements, Sampling. So if there's a sampling requirement on a permit, we've seen gaps there, which also just brings us into permit compliance as a whole. So whether it's routine monitoring, routine inspections, maybe routine maintenance, um, we've seen gaps in, in permit compliance. Again, that could be an air permit, that could be a wastewater permit, that could be a stormwater permit, um, but just permit compliance as a whole has, has suffered. Um, and then process safety management programs under OSHA and what I like to call their cousin under the EPA, the risk management program. Both of those have struggled um, because A, those are two, I would say, of, of our most complex EHS regulatory programs, process safety management and risk management programs. So in the best of times, compliance, you know, is is a struggle for, for workplaces. But then secondly, there's a lot of routine requirements in these programs, whether it's an audit, whether it's an assessment, whether it's training, or whether it's just that routine maintenance um, associated with both of these standards. Uh, employers have struggled with with compliance through those programs. Um, both of those programs require a lot of administration on site. So if you don't have the person there to to double check that everything is is actually working the way it should, then then it's, it's it could be could be an issue. And then lockout tagout, uh, lockout tagout, I would say is is probably a regulatory program that a lot of people struggle with because it is a um, it, it has a a wide scope 
on uh, in, in, in any workplace. Um, but the area that, that we've seen struggle the most is the annual audits under lockout tagout because you have to audit somebody's application and understanding um, as well as the quality of the um, the equipment-specific lockout tagout procedures. So that's a challenge during COVID because you are physically auditing somebody implementing that procedure. And, and so that requires contact. You know, you can do it from six feet, absolutely, but it requires physically being there or, you know, you could use some of the technology that's been used, um, you know, throughout the pandemic, such as videos and, and, and GoPros and things of that nature. But, but that's one that we, we see people misunderstanding the requirement during the best of times. And so you add the challenge of the pandemic. It, it, it's really a, a lot of folks have, have missed that, that obligation. And then lastly, industrial hygiene. And so industrial hygiene, ensuring that, you know, employees are not exposed to contaminants above permissible exposure limits um, requires uh, monitoring. And, and so normally that requires maybe a contractor coming on site, you know, affixing the badges and the pumps to employees, monitoring them over a period of time, sending that sample to a lab and saying you're above or below those those limits. So that requires a lot of moving parts. One, the ability to have a visitor in your facility. You know, two, the close contact that is associated with equipping those badges and those pumps to two individuals. And and three, when you're doing that assessment, you want those assessments to be representative of normal operations. And there's probably a lot of people out there listening that would say, we have not had normal operations for 12 to 13 months. So how can you do an assessment when you know you're not assessing a normal situation because things are just always in in flux. Maybe you're going to run that process line today, but maybe there was a case of COVID and that entire process line is all in quarantine. (laughs) So you had the vendor scheduled to come in today to do the assessment and guess what? There's nothing to assess. And so there's just been struggles with with all the moving parts that goes into industrial hygiene monitoring. Um, you know, Nathan, have, have y'all seen anything in working with your clients that kind of f- further support some of what we're seeing or are you seeing anything else? Well, you said normal operations. We haven't had that in a while. And uh, what I have seen is obviously the specific areas you reference. But what I'm also seeing is the issue of personnel. So when you talk about gaps, I would call them maybe personnel gaps. So because of COVID, for example, some businesses had to lay off people and maybe that person was an EHS specialist or they just hired a new EHS individual manager for a facility, for example, or there's just been natural turnover during COVID where someone retires, EHS personnel, new EHS personnel comes in. But because you don't have normal operations, that normal transition from one individual to another isn't happening. And I'm seeing more and more enforcement cases where a gap, a regulatory gap has been created where a permit application wasn't submitted or records were not being maintained because when that individual retired or was let go and the new individual came on, there wasn't an onboarding process that 
was ready to cope with the irregularities, if you will, of normal operations under COVID. And so this to me, everything you said and what I just described, it just it's imperative, I think, that any medium size to large size uh, regulated facility, regulated entity, they need to do a voluntary compliance audit. They really need to step back and look at these gaps, try and identify where these gaps are. Because we we do this all the time, you and I, we, you know, we have companies that we work with that do them every year. And the thing that I find amazing is these companies that have the best EHS programs you know, in the world, arguably, who do audits every year you know, with reputable companies, and they take it very seriously, they're top manufacturing facilities will still sometimes have 20, 30, 40 findings. And that's under the best of circumstances. So imagine a scenario where you've had abnormal operations for now a year, where we've talked about all these gaps that are being identified, and a lot of them are coming up via enforcement. I can't imagine even the best of companies, what their findings are going to look like. Because the other thing to keep in mind is, those companies we were talking about that do this regularly, lots of them deferred their audits for all of 2020. So they haven't even done audits. So they're going to have lots of additional findings because of just normal things that happen, plus adding COVID irregularities onto it. Think about the companies that rarely do audits. I mean, they, they're going to be worse. So I have to recommend you do you know, a voluntary compliance audit. And I really... If you're going to do it and do it right, you probably should involve an attorney. You should have that done under attorney-client privilege. Have your attorney retain the consulting firm who's going to do the work so that you can at least create the defense of the attorney-client privilege regarding the report that's generated. You may not want to use that uh, if you got into enforcement or you wanted to voluntarily disclose the findings, et cetera. But, you know, it's better to have established that defense at the outset than to to go into it, particularly in this situation where there's so much uncertainty about what you're going to find, even if you consider yourself to be the elite of sort of the EHS world, you're, you're going to find more than you normally would. And you should factor that in. And, and you know, something um, that I think is interesting to note, we've been talking about abnormal operations and, and, and a lot of the struggles, assuming that you didn't have staff, you know, available to maintain certain programs. Uh, another, another um, I guess, effect of COVID that, that we've seen is, you know, I could even say for, for HRP as well, you know, going into the pandemic, we were crazy busy. And, and I heard the phrase once, have you ever tried to change the tires on a car when it's going 100 miles an hour? And so when you're crazy busy, it's hard for you to pause and have those process improvements or kind of focus, you know, you know, in the business as opposed to on the business. And so some companies have taken this pause, if you will to build in some process improvements or some efficiencies into their operations, which is wonderful. But as you're talking about audits and disclosures and things of that nature, was there a management of change that was exercised in some of those process improvements or building improvements that you exercised during these abnormal operations? Or could you have maybe failed to get a necessary air permit 
or, you know, failed to update a, a critical management system element, you know, such as lockout, tagout, because you just pulled in this this new piece of equipment or, or you had these process improvements. So I think an audit, you know, if somebody's out there like, oh, no, we had our staff, we were good. You know, we actually really focused on a lot of improvements during this time. Well, that, too, might be a reason why you want to do this audit. What what did your management of change or lack of management of change program not, you know, not pick up on, you know, during this time? So, Nathan, let's say we've got companies out there and, and they're like, yeah, you know what? That's a good idea. We need to pause. We need to see where are we now and where should we be relative to compliance? You know, what what should somebody do when they they find those gaps and and really what i'm leading you in here is is to dec- disclose or not to disclose and 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 i know that's something that sometimes when i'm doing an audit on behalf of a client and there's not an attorney involved either in-house counsel or somebody like you you know is not involved Sometimes we have findings where we're like, you know, you might want to get counsel involved here. Um, you know, what what um, what calculus should somebody apply, you know, relative to when to disclose a finding versus not? So when I look at this, I divide it into OSHA noncompliance and environmental noncompliance. OSHA to me is very straightforward you're never going to disclose anything because there's no reason to there's no there's no benefit to you to disclosing it to the regulatory authorities you don't there's no audit policy there is no um other than the covid discretionary policy we talked about but just day to day there's no guidance there under which you're going to get a penalty break something for voluntarily disclosing something now that's not to say for example you if you have a reporting duty for example yeah fatality uh someone loses, you know, the amputation, you've got a hospitalization, or you have you know, record keeping or reporting obligations that are required to be submitted to OSHA or reported to OSHA. Obviously, you need to do those things. And if you do them late, well, you still need to do them. You know, you're not just going to say, well, I missed it, so I'm not going to do it. You're going to do it. So OSHA, again, straightforward as far as I'm concerned. Environmental, a little more art, it's, it's a little more art than science. It just depends on, you know, what's your risk tolerance? Uh, what's the actual violation? Do you have a lot of violations versus uh, one violation? Is, is, the vi- is the one violation an extreme violation? You know, you need a Title V error permit and you don't have one versus you find some minor compliance issue. You know, oh, we failed to have one record for, you know, our three years of RICRA hazardous waste storage area inspections and we missed one weekly inspection, okay, you're probably not going to self-disclose that. So it's more art than science, but a couple of things that I look to is, you know, one, unlike OSHA, EPA in most states have some form of either an audit policy or an audit privilege law under which if you voluntarily disclose something, a violation, you may still receive a notice of violation, but you most likely will not receive a penalty. So that's the benefit of disclosing it. Two, you have this EPA also has a uh, new owner policy, which COVID or not comes in great. If you are acquiring a company or a facility and you conduct an audit within a certain time before or after that acquisition and you identify findings, you can disclose those at least to the US EPA under its new owner policy, uh, audit policy, if you will. 
And I've used that many, many times in the past, and I have found it to be a great policy because essentially US EPA's approach to it is, thank you for letting us know, tell us when you have everything fixed. We may come and inspect you, but we probably won't. And by the way, you won't get dinged for anything that happened because of your predecessor. So that's another area to consider when to disclose, not to disclose. I think generally speaking, EPCRA violations are an area where folks should go ahead and disclose because the audit policy itself has been streamlined for that in many respects. Oftentimes, I think this is accurate, that the most often self-disclosed violations are EPCRA violations, i.e. you failed to submit a Form R report. Um, you failed to submit a Form R report that was complete. You know, Maybe you missed a chemical, et cetera. So these are often very administrative violations. And I think EPA, frankly, got kind of sick of receiving these formal letters saying, hey, we violated this. And they created an electronic reporting system that was specifically geared towards EPCRA. And if you fell into that, those types of violations I just described, sort of routine Form R violations, those just go straight to a thank you for reporting. Um, we have certified you are in compliance going forward. You know, And so I would always say disclose those. You're going to reap the benefit of no penalty and you're going to also update in the process your Form R reporting so that it is up to date and accurate, et cetera. We talked a little bit about this idea of the types of violations and the number of violations, et cetera. I guess the way I look at it is if you have a one significant or a couple significant violations, you should probably disclose. If you have numerous smaller violations, but cumulatively they add up to you know, a significant violation because you're going to have compounding penalties and other things, you might as well go ahead and disclose those as well. The, the real area where the middle ground is, is when you're somewhere between those two areas. And that's where I'm talking about. You have to just, what's your risk tolerance? What's the likelihood you're going to be inspected and this issue is going to be discovered, et cetera. But one question I always ask myself is, is the violation something where we were required to submit something or maintain a record? Okay. So because those are the things where EPA shows up, inspects your facility, and they say, I want to see all your inspection records, and you haven't inspected something for three years. Well, I'd rather disclose that when I learn about it so that I don't get dinged for those three years. Or if I was required to submit, for example, like uh, air monitoring reports or uh, wastewater discharge monitoring reports to an agency. Well, they're going to figure that out eventually. So you might want to try to disclose, even if the policy technically says you can't disclose things like that, you might as well try to disclose them under the policy. So those are some things to, to consider. Um, we don't need to dive into these policies, but they're all generally the same. They give you a time period within which you discover the violation to report it voluntarily to the state or federal agency. When you're thinking about these things, you also should think about, have I used the policy before for a very similar type of violation? Because there may be a prohibition against you doing that within a certain time period. So if you reported at facility A that you didn't have a Title V permit, and then a year passes, you facility B, you uh, do your voluntary compliance audit there, and you realize it doesn't have a Title V permit, you may be barred from using the audit policy within a certain time period, say three to five years, to report that. So sometimes people will factor that in and say, well, this violation's relatively small in this particular area and let's just let's hold our chip back 
until we we might want to use it on something bigger that is similar down the road as opposed to this relatively minor issue. And the last thing I'll say about the audit policy is EPA just issued, I think within the last month or two, a new frequently asked question guidance document where it went through the EPA audit, US EPA audit policy and sort of revised some of the answers to the typical questions people have about eligibility, you know, what kind of violations can I report, things of that nature. And it's it's not much different from what they've had before, but I think it's a little more concise and it's helpful. And I recommend it to anyone who um, is is familiar with the audit policy or not familiar, just to get a better idea of what the universe of the audit policy looks like and what types of violations the agency um, discusses in that policy. And, and then what about, you know, in general, I know there could be nuances from state to state, but but in general, is there a certain amount of time that you have to disclose to the agency? So it seems like there's a lot of things that should be taken in consideration. Um, you know, can you disclose three months later or is it more timely than that? Yeah, it depends. It's all over the map. Oh, US EPA is 21 days from the date of discovery. So it's a pretty tight window and a lot of states follow that as well. A lot of other states, however, just have generic language like timely notify us or within a reasonable period of time, et cetera. There are some other states too that have maybe double the 21 days. So they're all over the map and that's why you really need to, one of the things I caution people about is they just think about the audit policy and they think about US EPA. And so you have to really think, who am I disclosing to? In some cases, you may just disclose to the state. So you better be familiar with their audit policy and what their timing requirements are. Some cases, you're just going to, vol- you're going to voluntarily disclose to US EPA. And some, you're going to voluntarily disclose to both. So these are considerations from a timing perspective you have to deal with. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, Illinois has a audit disclosure policy that has a length longer than US EPA. And we just had to disclose some air violations that have a federal component and a state component. So it was a little tricky because while our Illinois disclosures were technically not due for maybe another 20 days after US EPA's disclosure, we had to just go ahead and rush everything, if you will, because we had to meet that 21 day deadline for US EPA. So I would just, the way I look at it is I've never seen one that's less than 21 days. So always just use 21 days as sort of your floor and then see what else you have going on. So I think that's an important timing mechanism for everybody to understand. So if you're thinking, yes, I'm going to do an audit, see where I am, where do I need to be? So it's not going to be 21 days from when you had that violation. It's going to be 21 days from when you discovered you had that violation. So schedule your audits, you know, and and in that scheduling, you know, kind of have that mark on your calendar that if there's anything you want to disclose from this audit, this, you know, you're going to want to engage your in-house legal counsel, somebody like Nathan, you know, in that decision mechanism, you know, pretty timely from, from when you have that audit. Um, so, so lots of considerations. We're still, we're still living with COVID. You know, we're likely going to be living with COVID for quite some time. And, and so whether we're dealing with the challenges of the pandemic or whether we're dealing with just normal challenges that any workplace might have, such as natural attrition being bought or sold, you know, with, with other companies or, or just 
the other myriad of routine challenges that we have. When you're looking at compliance, you know, just uh, as I I tell my son, you're going to mess up and that's fine, but mess up, fess up and move on. So as that applies to compliance, realize you're going to have compliance challenges in the best of time. So that's the mess up part. Fess up, have an audit. Identify what the challenges were. Identify what your gaps are. And and maybe in that fess up part, not only is it an internal fess up where you identify that you had a compliance gap and what are you going to do to move forward? What are you going to do to make sure that doesn't happen again? Maybe in that fess up part, you want to include your your federal or, or state environmental agencies to get some of those disclosure protections and then move on. Make sure you build resiliency into your environmental health and safety programs, whether that's through a management system, whether that's through just building in duplication, such as having more than one person that can file a certain report, having more than one person that can do some essential inspections and and just build in some of that resiliency so, so that you can be prepared for the next challenge, whatever that challenge might be. Well, thanks, Jackie. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate it. It was an interesting conversation. And I think you have a, a great career in the t-shirt business with mess up, fess up and move on. So if this EHS racket doesn't work out for you, just uh, jump into the t-shirt market. <laughs> well, if, if my son was listening to this podcast, I'm sure he'd roll his eyes. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think 14-year-old boys is, is the, uh, the demographic we're going for. So I, I think we're safe in that one. <laughs> This episode of 312 is brought to you by the Thompson Hine Podcast and their series, Environmental LAWS. Court is now in session. Mr. Simmons, you may proceed with your opening remarks. Thank you, Your Honor. If it pleases the court, I'd like to bring your attention to Thompson Hine Podcasts and their series, Environmental LAWS. Uh, laws explores current topics in environmental health and safety laws in the United States from the perspectives of Thompson Hine environmental attorneys, the regulated community, regulators, and the occasional special guest. It covers a wide range of issues in the areas of land, air, water, and safety laws, LAWS, if it pleases the court, Your Honor, and will be of special interest to any company that faces environmental health and safety issues. Objection, Your Honor. Th- this man is attempting to plug a completely different podcast in the middle of his own podcast. Overruled. I'm going to allow it. Mr. Simmons, proceed with your podcast, but on the stipulation that everyone listening has to go subscribe to Thompson Hine Podcast and the Environmental LAWS Podcast as soon as they're done with this episode. Thank you, Your Honor. Now, as I was saying, Your Honor Thompson, this I, is a highly regular order. Your order in the court. So help me, there will be order in this courtroom. So help me, I will have order in this courtroom. This episode of Three Twelve is brought to you by HRP Training. HRP can get you the training and certifications you need through our online learning management system, highly interactive virtual sessions, and in-person training courses. Starting April 29th and running until the end of May, you'll find a weekly series of free webinars all on the theme of post-pandemic resilience. 
Topics include assessing your compliance gaps, EHS training, industrial hygiene, lockout tagout, and risk management programs and process safety management. Go to hrpassociates.com slash training to learn more. Hey everyone, Tom Simmons here for the Play Hard section of 312. Jackie and Nathan are with us once again, and this time we are joined by HRP's Southeast Regional Manager, Sean Malin. Sean, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. And our theme for this podcast episode is post-pandemic resilience. So I want to know how all of you are personally staying resilient, how you've stayed resilient during this time, and how you're going to carry that forward. Uh, Jackie, you want to start us off here? Yeah. So, you know, if if not killing your family members counts as being resilient, I, I think the Baxleys have fared pretty well. So um, I have a 14-year-old son, a husband of about 16, 17 years, and, and a dog that is less than two years old. And, and we've, um, you know, the family is still together. I'd say we're a little stronger. We have learned to go to our corners and, and, and when to, to get together and, and when to ignore each other. So, um, you know, personally, um, I've always been a, a walker. I love walking the neighborhood. I'm not somebody you're ever going to see in a gym, but you'll see me walking miles and miles in the neighborhood. So I've maintained my personal sanity by either walking or working in the yard. And then something that our family has ended up doing, because there's only so much time you can spend with people and actually have something to talk about, we've been playing board games at dinner every night. And and so that's been something that's been fun, is, is each night we're at dinner, we're playing a board game. Sometimes it's Yahtzee, um, but but most nights it is Settlers of Catan that, that we play. And, and that way we don't have to continually think about what are we going to say to these people that we've been stuck with for 13 months. <laughs> what is that game, Jackie? Settlers of what? What is Settler- that? Yeah, Settlers of Catan. It's great. It is. Now, I'm a gaming family, right? We're always playing cards. We're always playing some type of board game. That's just my family, extended family as well. But Settlers of Catan, to me, is one of the best all-time board games ever. It gets heated, though. Yeah. I've made some real enemies playing that game, like Monopoly levels of animosity. I don't oh, think you, you still forgive me. you can be really yet. spiteful and malicious. Oh, yeah. And and we have the Baxley version of Settlers of Catan, which means we've kind of made our own house rules over the years. So it's, um, yeah, it, it, it can get pretty hairy. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, how about you? Well, before I get to that, I have to say I find it hilarious because I had never played that game before until about two months ago when my adult daughter's friend brought it over. And uh, I probably had a couple beers and I was trying to figure the rules out. Love the game. Have no idea how I came in like third place out of four people. But uh, I'm looking forward to playing it again. You know, for me, the resiliency thing was all about trying to stick to my routines as best I could. And so I'm one of those people I was very lucky with respect to the lockdowns and, and the pandemic generally because I have an adult son who doesn't live with me but he lives right down the street. So he's out of the house. And I have an older uh, daughter who also goes to college. And so she's most of the time out of the house. And my youngest daughter is in college. She's a freshman. Now she's in the house, but 
she sort of just lives in her room. So you don't get into too many, too many, uh, conflicts with her. So generally speaking, you know, we didn't have that problem like a lot of people had where you had everybody in the house and, you know, school and all of that stress. I was also able to go to the office the entire year. I, I've never worked from home a single day. So to me, it was all about, you know, get up, go to work every day, stick to my workout routine, stick to, you know, just the same routines my wife and I would stick to. And once things began opening up again, you know, to the degree we could, we folded some of our older routines into our lifestyle, you know, going to, you know, our favorite little pub down the street kind of thing, or, uh, you know, going, we have a place up in Michigan that we can go to that, um, you know, we don't have to go anywhere except to that place. So we were able to incorporate those types of things. And uh, for us, I think it, it went pretty well. We didn't, you know, when I hear people talk about having school age kids in particular, I have a lot of empathy for them because, you know, I don't know how we would have done it if we were trying to, you know, school our children, go to work and, you know, live cramped up in our little house together. Yeah, I, I guess for us, um, I, I, I have some similarities to Nathan. Um, you know, I have a five minute commute um, and, and not a lot of people were in the office. You know, we have uh, uh, several thousand square feet and so a lot of people working remotely. And so I'd use that to my advantage. Um, actually, that's not even true. I'm lying to you guys. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I worked at home for like the first three months. And I have an eight-year-old who was home e-learning at that point in time and a three-year-old. And um, my wife let me know uh, very constructively that I shout when I get on the phone. And she was very tired of listening uh, a, to me shout, B, to the content with which I was shouting about, which was constant and mundane probably at that point in time. And uh, I basically got kicked out of the house, actually. Um, you know, <laughs> it, was a, it was a family decision that dad could not, we could not work from home. And then, you know, everybody got into the whole issue of bandwidth with the kids e-learning, right? Jack, I know you had some issues with that as well. Um, so being that my commute was so short and there wasn't anybody in the office anyhow, um, that kind of that was probably a big piece of the puzzle, uh, Tom, as far as the resiliency on the home front, uh, removing me from the chaotic equation at home. Um, uh, but early on, I mean, it was rough. Uh, kudos to my wife. It was rough with a three-year-old and then trying to do second grade on the e-learning. And you know, um, uh, we went through spells of you know we're never going to send our kid back to school, and then the next day it was. Uh, if this kid doesn't go back to school, you know, if the COVID doesn't kill us, you know, we're going to kill each other kind of thing. So there, there was, we were up and down and all over the place on that. So, um, you know, we were able down here in South Carolina, we got kids back to school um, right before the holidays and all that kind of jazz. So um, things picked up a little bit. But, you know, on the gaming front, um, I don't know, we, we pretty much hunkered out. I'm not much of a game person. Um, much to my wife's chagrin, her family is huge, uh, huge games people. Um, they're way too competitive for me. I, I, I am, I am very competitive as it is. And she's, my wife is equally as competitive. We did find a game called Hive. Have, has anybody ever played Hive? It's, it's like this, um, nope. they're these little, I believe, I believe they're hexagons, not octagons, but it's, it's like a bug game. And, um, how could I describe it? It's, it, it's not really rummy, but you know, you get a spider, you get a, 
you got to protect the bee. There's a queen bee. It's very that verbally this this is going to be disastrous. But look it up. Hive is a great game. There's a lot of strategy in it, um, and a lot of uh, a lot of cool things. So if you're looking for something new, I would check that too. And I'll still keep looking for this conquest of El Capitan or whatever the heck you guys are talking about. <laughs> well, you know um, what? Just send Tammy over to my house because we're always... Yeah. 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 So, so uh, in, She will take you up on that. In my family, spoons is a contact sport. So the more competitive, the better. <laughs> for me, working from home uh, was a huge benefit because I get to work in a space that is kind of completely my own. I get to, you know, to control that whole environment. So coming back into the office, uh, everything was like turned up to 11. Everybody, any (laughs) typing on any keyboard, uh, it's like it's inside my, it's like they're typing on my, the bones in my ear. You know, I could hear the heartbeats (laughs) of people sitting next to me. So resiliency Uh, for me, they're breathing uh, the form of having the basic, the baseline level compassion and empathy to, uh, be around other people. <laughs> and to do that, I kind of implemented the meditation and mindfulness practices that I decided to make a sincere engagement with over the course of working from home and kind of bring that into the space of taking five minutes to sit in my car every morning before I went into the office and just put myself in a positive space where I could interact with people instead of uh, letting them drive me crazy for doing nothing wrong. Man, Tom, that's heavy. I don't know. I think Tom Tom might be a superhero, actually. You should go to the doctor and get checked out. I mean, if you can hear people's heartbeats, that's that's, that's the first sign that you might be a superhero. (laughs) Or a vampire. Or a vampire. (laughs) I I get it, though. you know, I have I have difficulty uh, working in, in really crowded spaces. So, I mean, this is going to be interesting, right? We have everybody coming back-ish uh, to the office, uh, regardless of the state that you work in. Uh, Nathan, I don't know if you guys have people coming back into the office yet or what, what Ohio or local ordinances, what's going on with there. But, um, you know, here in our Greenville office, Jackie and I are in the same office. And um, it's picked up a little bit over the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, for the most part, it was just three three folks, including myself, for a long time, and then um, uh, we've had some folks kind of trickle back more consistently over the last couple of weeks. And so, I think I think with people getting vaccinated and things like that, I think there's a lot of more um, uh, comfort level with getting back to it. So I don't know about y'all, but like we just we just purchase tickets for a concert that um, my my family and I we go to every year. It here's a plug for the Albino the <laughs> the Albino Skunk Music Festival. Look it up. I did not make that up. The Albino Skunk Music Festival. Uh, they hold it every fall and spring of every year. And my husband and I and son, we've always gone. And obviously it's been canceled, you know, here recently, but um, they are doing the spring skunk is 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 gonna happen so we just bought our tickets we camp out at the music festival it's a great event but my husband and i were talking last night about i haven't been around that many people in forever you know it's it's just it's going to be weird it's it's an outdoor music festival there's plenty of space to spread out they're limiting the number of tickets they sell by that time, I'll be fully vaccinated. My husband's already fully vaccinated. And and so, you know, I feel comfortable with the protocols. It's just going to be weird 
being around that many people because I don't think, you know, I, I've not been around crowds at all unless you count the grocery store. <laughs> so um, so it's going to be, you know, I, I just wonder how much um, how much it's going to take just to get used to being in those settings and situations again because we've been isolated for, for so long to varying degrees. Yeah, here in, uh, so I'm in our Dayton, Ohio office and we're in a suburban location and uh, it was, it was, there weren't many people. It was sort of like Sean's experience, you know, there for a long time, there were very few people here, you know, at most, maybe a third of the people would come in. Now I would say we have about 40 attorneys and I'd say about 35 to 30 come in every day. Um, we still have a staff cycle going where they, the staff sort of work every other day. They work at home, then they come in. Because back in the the fall and the winter, we you know across the country, of course, COVID was ramping up, and so that was one of the measures that was put in place to try and keep the number of people in the office down. But they've just never taken that away yet. So I'm, I'm not sure if we're just going to keep doing mm-hmm. that, or you know maybe that'll be sort of a legacy of COVID. But I, I, your point's an interesting one, Jackie. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day about that, and, and his wife generally works from home anyway. And she has a little bit of anxiety, et cetera. And she's gotten pretty used to COVID. And, you know, the, like she kind of likes the staying at home and everything. And I was <laughs> saying to him, you know, boy, I, I just wonder how many people out there are going to have trouble sort of transitioning back. Uh, yeah, it, it could be an issue. You know, yeah. One way to do it is you. Uh, so my family and I, we're going we're going to Wyoming in June for a trip. And since Wyoming has about as many people as Dayton, Ohio, and it's about four times the size of Ohio, <laughs> probably will be able to spread out pretty well there. We won't have those issues, but uh, I've definitely been in a few restaurants and, and bars where I've thought, boy, there's a there's a lot of people in here. So it uh, doesn't bother me too much, but I haven't been that big, you know, what you're talking about, that outdoor arena or setting where, or a big, you know, sports event where you're surrounded by, you know, thousands upon thousands of people. So I'm interested uh, just as a sort of a passive observer to see, see what happens. Yeah, I've always been a person that I probably had a larger radius of personal space in my own mind uh, that was either granted to me by the people around me or not, you know, so it'll definitely be interesting, Jackie, to see how many people. So an albino skunk, is that an inverse or is it an (laughs) old white skunk? Or is that like, is it, is it a, is it a white skunk with a black stripe? I'd have to go to the website to get the official story, but if I remember correctly, (laughs) if I remember correctly, the first, you know, event that is now known as the Albino Skunk Music Festival, their their first event, they saw uh, like two, I think, albino skunks walking through the venue. And and so it hence thus therefore became the Albino Skunk Music Festival. So um it's in Greer, South Carolina. You know, I would say it has historically been bluegrass, but it's really kind of kicked it up a notch in the most recent years. Um, This year, one of my all-time favorite bands that I actually discovered at Albino Skunk Music Festival is coming back in May. So I'm super excited for War and Treaty. If you have never listened to the War and Treaty, 
give yourself a, a break, give yourself a reward and go find them on YouTube. They are absolutely phenomenal. It's a husband and wife team. Absolutely incredible um, group. War and Treaty. So I discovered War and Treaty at this music festival. I discovered Shiny Ribs at this music festival. I don't know if y'all have ever listened to Shiny Ribs. I don't know what Shiny Ribs' <laughs> real name is, but he used to be the lead singer, I think, for The Gourds, maybe? Oh, um, yeah. Um, it's kind of some super shows. that It's a really small venue, too, so not thousands of people, more like hundreds of people. And, and mm. what's been really fun is we first started going when my son was, like, in first grade. And, and it's small. And so they actually have like a little kitty area. So your kids kind of get to run around in a very safe space um, while their parents are, you know, having a beer and listening to some good music. And um, so like there's this whole little kitty land area. So it's actually as far as the music festivals, you know, circuit, it's a tame one. It's a very tame, family friendly, much smaller one, but just a great way for you to kind of catch some 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 shows. So for the record, the skunk is all white. According to the website, <laughs> just to just to close the book on that one, and, and and I think the festival owes you a little bit of money, Jackie, because that was one heck of a I plug. Know. Maybe <laughs> yeah. so, maybe mm. so. So, Tom, maybe we yeah. can uh, get some shared marketing with uh, <laughs> definitely. Got to get a tie yeah, in the there. Festival, a free a free camping space. Don't you guys? Uh, yeah, you have a camper. We, we have. You, uh, you used to tent it, and then you bought a camper. But didn't the camper like roll out of your driveway or something tragic? Like what happened? Tell us that story. If the camper rolled out of the driveway, I was not privy to that information. So unless my husband shared that with you, and I did uh, not know that story, so maybe we have I, a maybe we not. have a pop up. So yeah, we used to tent camp, and um, then I turned forty, and I don't sleep on the ground anymore. <laughs> um, when we bought the pop up, the person that we bought the pop up from. Yeah, they said, we're high. He's like, I don't know why we sell pop-ups. You know, we don't make money on pop-ups. He's like, I guess the reason why we sell pop-ups is because people get sick of the pop-ups and then they come and trade them in for like a real RV. And so we're pretty close to doing that because, you know, it's it's funny, you know, the effort that goes into pinching a tent is nothing, right? And then the effort that goes into, you know, popping up a camper is really not that much either. But the ability just to kind of pull in and park and plug in, yeah, I'm just the older I'm getting, I I, I see the, the value in the full RV. <laughs> Creature comforts. Yep. So uh, what's everybody drinking? I just came from Donkey's, so I had a nice coffee that I pounded. Now, do you guys have Dunkin' Donuts uh, out around there, or is that just the Northeast? We're, we're still located in America, Tom, so we do have Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> <laughs> I heard they're, no, they don't have them out west. Maybe not. So I've heard. We we do have Dunkins. Um, although if you're if you're talking donuts in the South, mm-hmm. they're gonna say Krispy Kreme before yeah. before oh, yeah. uh, Dunkin' Donuts. Um, yeah, but absolutely. if you're talking coffee, I would say Dunkin' Donuts has a a, pre, a, a pretty good coffee. Um, I'm drinking some high quality H two O because nice. I'm I'm not off the clock yet. I actually uh, have some mom duties later today, taking a uniform back to the school and and doing little things like that. But what I have waiting for me when I do get home and and get off the clock is there's a local brewery in Greenville called Birds Fly South. Sean, I don't know if you've ever been to Birds Fly South. Yeah, for sure. But Birds Fly South is a uh, local brewery here. 
and um, they're kind of old style farmhouse brew, and and they do a lot of different sours, and I'm a big fan of mm. the sours, and so um, mm-hmm. I have bird brains in my uh, refrigerator. That sounds like somebody just popped in and said she has bird brains in her refrigerator. Bird brains is one of their sours that I've got waiting for me at the house. I am, uh, I'm shocked and, and sorry to say that I don't know if we have Dunkin' Donuts around where I really? live here in Ohio. <laughs> yeah, it's so weird because I could probably rattle off about four Starbucks and a couple of Krispy Kremes. And my brother lives in the Boston area. And so when we drive out there, you know, we see a gazillion Dunkin' Donuts once you hit, you know, uh, New York State pretty much. But I, I got to think we have Dunkin' Donuts around here. But I, I, I got to be honest, I, I can't recall where one would where one is. Uh, I am drinking the finest uh, Keurig uh light brew coffee that's in our little coffee center. I have no idea what brand it is. I have no idea what the name of it is. I just know it has a little orange stripe on it. And that's the one I get instead of the dark roast every time I get coffee. So (laughs) when I get home, as we have mentioned a few times, I do have a bar. I'm very proud of my bar. It, uh, Mm -hmm. Sean will appreciate the fact that it's Steeler themed. We're both big Steelers fans. (laughs) And, uh, I have a ridiculous bounty of choices, um, anywhere on the spectrum you want to go, you know, beers on tap, beers in the fridge, bourbons, whiskeys, uh, scotch, et cetera, et cetera. So, I don't have a specific choice in mind, but uh, something, something will happen. Something will happen. <laughs> I, uh, I have a combination of the two of them, Tom. I have uh, Greenville's Finest, uh, Rewa Water, in a really gross, crusted over coffee cup, uh, poorly rinsed. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I have a combination. It, it mainly, I guess what, what that results in is like the coffee you get in the lobby of a hotel when you're staying there. So it's kind of like this... This weird. I also have a, a soccer game to attend tonight, and uh, um, also, you know, we got started at three o'clock, so I was very hesitant. I put a lot of thought into whether or not uh, Jackie and Nathan were going to roll in with beers or not on a Tuesday. So, looks like I chose wisely. <laughs> Be that guy. But um, in regards to to Nathan's bar, it is phenomenal. Um, he has a lot of, uh, memorabilia there and, and, uh, I didn't want to commandeer this podcast to talk about the draft, the upcoming NFL draft. So maybe we can take that offline, Nathan, but, um, yeah, I'll go for it. Um, I mean, I have nothing to add to that conversation. Where is listen. the draft? Yeah. Where is the draft this year? I'm assuming I believe it's, it's virtual. I believe no, it's, it's in Cleveland. Cleveland. No, it's, it's, Cleveland. it's in Cleveland. This yeah, year. yeah. 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 It's, it's going to be full. Uh, they're expecting, you know, thousands of people. Really? All right. All right. Cool. So um, I guess real quickly, Nathan, are you feeling running back? Because that's the consensus. That's that's the money. That's where the yeah, money is Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen the uh, the talk there. I feel like it's going to be an offensive lineman or it's going to be some strange trade up to get a quarterback that it's going to be a spur of the moment thing. If they, if they see a certain individual drop – they're yeah. going to say, we might as well just go for it now and go after somebody. But I just, I don't think they're going to go running back. I think that's more smoke and mirrors because there's just so many running backs you can get cheaper, right? You can get one in the second, third round. I just can't see them going first round running back. But now that I've said it, 
I will be wrong. Yeah. So it will be running back first round. Yeah. <clears throat> I've gone through several iterations of this. Um, it, it would be very Steelers to draft a lineman, especially in a, in a, a draft. Sorry again, Tom, for taking over this, but there's like <laughs> a phenomenal amount of, this is supposed to be like a, a, a offensive line rich draft, right? So you don't have to take your number one pick on that position, but that would be, the Steelers would totally do that and have done that. Um, I don't see the quarterback thing. I, I don't know. I know that they were really given a hard look to Ohio's uh, Justin Fields, Ohio State's, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't see them doing that. I'm kind of hoping, selfishly, I think the right pick is Najee Harris. I don't know that he'll be available. Um, and so I'm kind of like half of me is waiting for Etienne from Clemson to uh, to get onto the Steelers because that would be kind of cool to watch him uh, on Sundays uh, for me personally. Yeah. So I'm yeah. sitting here looking at Sean and Sean and yeah, this is a podcast. So you all can't see what I see. I realize that. But I'm sitting here looking at Sean and he's got his professional teams backdrop with, you know, some artwork. I can see his Clemson diploma. If mm-hmm. you were to mirror, like if you were to look at what Sean is looking at right now, That's not right. only just our faces, but you would be looking at a wall of nothing but yellow and black pittsburgh memorabilia on, right. on the other wall so if, if he could just do like a panoramic of his room you'd see penguins you'd see Steelers. that's right what am i missing some pirates there there <laughs> not a whole lot of room for pirate stuff but i actually have my mother um went to the world series in 1960 which is um when the pirates the last time the pirates won a world series no that's not true um but they beat the Yankees in seven games with a walk-off home run. Like that was the, I don't know if that was the first series, but that's the one that old timers will say, you know, you're standing in your backyard, you know, uh, three, two count, two outs, bottom of the ninth home run to win the world series. Right. Like that gratuitous thing. And my mother, when she moved down to South Carolina a couple years ago, when we had her first kid, she had a whole bunch of stuff from that game. And she called me and she's like, I'm going to throw all this pirate stuff away. Um, do you want it? I'm like, Oh my God. God, are you kidding me? You're going to throw that away? Because it's got like Roberto Clemente's in the photograph. He's like a he's like a oh, baby in wow. it. Um, and then I picked up uh, uh, the programs there and just looking through some of the advertisements from the 1960s. And so I got that all framed up. Um, but that is <laughs> that is the only piece of Pirates history that is uh, that is on that wall due to uh, the barren wasteland of 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 winning. But again, uh, Pittsburgh people were spoiled with the Penguins and the Steelers for sure. So it's hard to complain about it. Yeah. I was going to say there's, there's not much recent pirates, uh, accomplishments to be putting up on a wall. No, no, there's no new faces up there. (laughs) So Nathan, what's your connection with, with Pittsburgh, just a fan of the Steelers or is that, is that where you're from? Cause I know you as a, as, as an Ohio guy. Yeah, yeah, I'm an, I am an Ohio guy. I've lived most of my life here, so not to sound so to go deep down the rabbit hole, but my uh, I'm actually a West Virginia guy. So my entire family's from West Virginia. My mom grew up in West Virginia. My dad grew up in West Virginia. All of my uh, aunts and uncles generally have lived in West Virginia. My grandparents all lived in West Virginia, and my dad grew up in Morgantown, West Virginia, where WVU is, West Virginia University. My mom went to West Virginia University, met my dad there. If you know the geography, it's about an hour away from Pittsburgh. So if you live in Morgantown, you're generally a Steelers fan or a Redskins fan. 
And uh, then my parents, after they graduated, moved to Pittsburgh. So we lived in Pittsburgh for a while. I was born in Pittsburgh. And then I departed uh, quickly thereafter as a young child. But it's sort of like, you know, a, someone who's born in the United States as a U.S. citizen. So I was born into <laughs> Pittsburgh uh, Steeler fandom. So I have the uh, the right to claim it, I think, under the some constitution somewhere. I'm Absolutely. not sure where that is. No, but, I agree. But I'm pretty sure I, I have that right. So, yeah, we were always, you know, my dad was a big Steelers fan and big Steelers fans growing up. I had a, one of those... Uh, when I was a little kid, I could still remember it. I loved it. It was basically like a letterman's jacket, but it was Steelers. You know, it had like gold sleeves and then it had the black, you know, middle part with the Steelers emblem. And I still see pictures of that jacket when I'm like five years old. And I'm like, man, I want that jacket. That yeah. is a cool jacket. <laughs> Find one and frame it for your bar, right? That's what I should do. You know, my wife, I converted her to... Uh, to be a Steelers fan. And so she's a big fan now. And football is a big part of our lives. I'm, it's interesting because I always loved football. Uh, but when I got older, when I actually graduated from law school, so that was you know 20 years ago, football like became a huge part of our lives. Uh, we would go to Steelers games every year, uh, you know, physically go to the games. And then now that we have this bar, my, like I said, my son's a huge Steelers fan. So he lives right down the street. And we're like that family that every Sunday, you know, he comes over at about 1130, you know, and we all watch football. My wife, him, me, or whoever's around, we watch football pretty much all day. I mean, we, it's not unusual for us to essentially take a break for dinner and then watch the evening game. So we're we're into it. We love it. And uh, it is a nice, it's one of those things. You guys play games. We watch football. That's sort of our thing. That's cool. Nathan, thanks so much for joining us. Sean, Jackie, thanks for being here as well. And we will see you all on the next episode. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us, everyone. This episode of 312 was hosted by Jackie Baxley with production assistance from me, Tom Simmons, and technical assistance from Everett Anderson. Subscribe to 312 for new episodes on the last Wednesday of every month. If you liked what you heard, rate us five stars. It really helps us out. Check out our YouTube channel every Wednesday for a new video. Thanks once again for joining us, and stay safe out there.